0: Came into sharp focus. In the UK, police identifying the suspect who killed two people on London Bridge.
1: Police say they are investigating a suspected connection with a radical Republican organization, the new IRA.
0: Freedom itself was attacked this morning by a faceless coward, and freedom will be defended. He's overseen some of the largest public order events the nation's capital has ever had to contend with. In his more than 35 years of policing experience, retired Metropolitan Police Commander Bob Broadhurst has led men and women across a number of challenging and complex London boroughs. He is recognised by his peers as one of the greatest police leaders the Met has had in a generation. He's described as calm, methodical, approachable and someone who, when he was overseeing a large public order event as gold commander, The officers under him felt at ease knowing he was watching over them with all the years of experience he had in operational policing. In this episode of Protect and Serve, Bob and I walk down memory lane and recall his time serving the people of London and these large public order events he oversaw as gold commander. All this and more next on Protect and Serve. Well, welcome to another episode of Protect and Serve. Wishing all my followers a happy new year. And again, thank you for all your support, comments, feedbacks, and follows of the show. Um, series one was absolutely fascinating. We interviewed some quite incredible people. And, you know, we're kicking off series two uh, on the same footing. And I'm absolutely honored this morning to be talking to a gentleman that has overseen some of the largest and most complex public order events London has seen throughout its policing history Um, his career dates back to 1977 when he started in Hendon and retiring in 2013 sorry after being awarded an OBE and recipient of the Queen's Police Medal. Uh, Bob Broadhurst welcome to the podcast it's lovely to have you with us how are you?
1: I'm fine Oliver how are you?
0: I'm very well. I think we should obviously, first of all, say I wish you a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. And, and again, thank you so much for coming on the show to, to talk about your career.
1: It's my pleasure.
0: So, like every podcast, I like to start at the beginning. Like every detective, we like to go back as far as we possibly can to the start and, and talk about your, your entry into Hendon in 1977. What was that like for a, a young man walking through the gates of Hendon into this new vocation of policing?
1: I think like everybody else, it was kind of overwhelming, frightening, exciting, a mixture of all of the above. But, but in some senses, Oliver, and just, just to backtrack, I actually joined the year that my father retired. Oh, wow. He had been a cop all his life. So when I was born, my dad was already a, a police officer um, back in the day that most of your, your listeners probably won't remember back in the 50s. Um, and I actually lived for, for the first 10 years of my life in a block of police flats, Fifty families, all of which the the male, the father was a police officer so so if you like the discipline of police work, the fact that you had to be quiet when all the dads were sleeping off at of night duty and you know if you mucked about, you had fifty dads telling you off that kind of discipline bit I was kind of born into, if you like, but behending but itself, the very fact that you're turning up with you know thirty other strange men and women in, in your class in this vast complex with hundreds of others, you know, and the fact that they were recruits to us, these were seasoned officers. Forget what you were going to meet out on the streets. You know, you're standing there quaking in your boots, aren't you, up at Hendon, um, this world-renowned establishment. So, yeah, it was a mixture of kind of excitement, fear, a a bit of nerds. But actually, you know, looking back on it, the start of a fantastic 36 years for me.
0: It's interesting because one of the questions I often ask most people that come on the podcast is kind of how was this move into policing received by friends and family because often there can be that kind of awkward silence in the room again you're going to be doing what in terms of now we've got to watch our p's and q's we're going to be careful what we do but for you obviously having almost that blue blood it wouldn't have been an issue obviously i would imagine your father and mum would have been very supportive
1: my father was well yeah he was supportive um perhaps touch on that a bit later on my mother wasn't, she she wanted better things of me. Um, you know, I, my parents were, were were good about making all us kids, you know, study further. So we all went to university or further education. And I suspect my mum was a little bit disappointed, you know, because my dad, bless him, was a PC all his life. Failed his four attempts at the sergeant's exam. Um, <laughs> and I know, you know, he was a great hard worker. I think, you know, mothers always look at their children and think, you know, you're gonna be a bank manager one day or a doctor or something like that. Um, but, but funnily enough, for me, I, I look back now and kick myself because I, I don't know about some of your other, you know, your listeners or people you've interviewed. But the very fact that my dad was a police officer kind of put me off wanting to be in it. It seemed almost mm. too easy. Um, and, and I remember I, I went for an interview at, for IBM in Croydon in the days when computers filled a room you know, with big wheels going round and round. You know, way before <laughs> even even PCs and you know something on your desk, let alone phones. Um, <laughs> and, and I got the job. But I came out, and, and they told me, of course, that to feed this beast, it was 24-hour shift work in a, an airless, windowless room. And I literally came out and thought, sod that. If I'm going to do shift work, I'm going to do something I enjoy, and I, and I went and signed the forms for the police. Uh, and that, that was a lot. I, I, I kick myself now because I am IT illiterate. I know nothing about it. But I could have been the head of IBM now. I could have been the new Steve Jobs, <laughs> not, not a former police officer, you know, sitting on podcasts telling this story to anybody who would listen. Um, so so I look back with a kind of um, fondness on that. But, yeah, but I, I suppose it was written in the stars that I was going to end up in the job. But interestingly, my, my, my dad's decision, you know, to, to encourage us kids to go to university, I wrote to the Met on the standard forms. And they wrote back to me saying, we notice you've got a degree. Here are the forms for the, the graduate entry scheme. Oh, And that was a game changer because probably... If I had my career again, I'd have been a bit like my dad and would have done 30-odd years as a, as a PC because that's where all the fun and excitement is, isn't it? But I got pushed down a track by becoming essentially special course.
0: So so tell us about the training because often, what you know, another regular question I ask that I'm always keen to understand is if you, you'd completed a degree, so, you know, there's a level of studious ability there that you've demonstrated. You know, so did you find the training – both physically and the um, academic part relatively straightforward was there anything that challenged you
1: um there's a lot that challenged me um the the physical bit i enjoy i mean i I was always a great sportsman i loved you know i loved sport athletics rugby um you know and i'm still involved as a rugby coach so the physical side apart from when they made you box and apart from having to jump off high boards and things that that put the fear of you know, literally the, the theory into in me. Um, the physical bit wasn't a problem. Academically, it's interesting because and, and the debate is raging now, isn't it? About you know having to have a degree to, to join the police service, mm. and, and the old sweats will say, "Well, I've got a degree from the University of Life Governor. Why do I need to study?" <laughs> um, but but police studying is not academic in the sense of you know you're you're, you're researching and, and you're using that. What what you're using is a mixture of common sense. Um, reliability, honesty, you know, the ability to retain facts uh, and, and put, put, as you say, you know, work your way logically through a problem. So it doesn't matter, you know, to me, you know, I, I had the degree, and of course, you you, you get all the, the Mickey taking and the teasing, which is part and parcel of being a police officer, isn't it? And hopefully, still is. Um, but it didn't matter whether you had a degree or anology or, or even no qualifications at all. Provided you could think logically and sensibly, uh, you know, and, and and work your way through problems and issues, um, and, and had for me the biggest virtue of all common sense, that, then that wasn't an issue. So, uh, so sometimes you can be overqualified. Uh, back in, in in my day, going back now to the late seventies, we still had the instruction manual and general orders. And we had A reports, I don't know, probably way before your day even, Oliver, but literally <laughs> it was about reading, you know, so, so for instance, the use of handcuffs, there, there was one one A4 page, three or four paragraphs that you had to learn off by heart. Wow. Now that, that's not about being academic, you know, um, it, it changed over the years. So that, that's what I struggled with, you know, but, but, you know, I would imagine most of us now can still remember, you know, the phonetic code, you know, Alpha, Bravo, Charlie, Delta. Mm. Um, but but that, that's not about being academic, is it? That's about having, having the mouse to learn something you're going to use every day of your working life.
0: I do remember personally that, you know, the vocation of policing is one that's incredibly complex in the sense of trying to remember verbatimly, you know, arrest procedures, you know, cautions, you know, and you talk about the handcuffing processes. You know, for us, when I was going through the academy, we went from learning quite detailed uh, operational procedures manuals to learning acronyms. So our particular one was was snot, quite a dreadful one, safety of self and others, nature of the offence, other relevant circumstances, temper and conduct. If you could fit it into that acronym somewhere, you were within the bounds of being able to, to handcuff someone. So, but it's a it's a fascinating vocation, the sense of the complexity of it. And what you do need to know from the day you walk out of the gates of Hendon whatever training college that you're going through because ultimately when you hit the streets of the borough or the division you're going to you can be faced with a multitude of different scenarios of which the public expect you to be able to deal with to a level that you're capable of dealing with before you have to refer off to a special you know specialty like a detective but it's um it's fascinating in terms of hearing your journey through Hendon it must have been a very proud day when you graduated from the academy
1: I, I, it was, you know, it was a proud day for me and everybody with me, you know. But it, it is, isn't it? You know, for me, policing is a family, and I and I really believe in that, Oliver. And um, when you pass out to have your family there and all the other families, and my dad, bless him, you know, there in his old police blazer with his badge on it, you know, his mm-hmm. time habitually with his flat cap, um, <laughs> you, you could see the pride etched on his face. But he was—I'm going to call him an old-style copper. His mates were, were fellow constables, the occasional sergeant. He refused to go and get his long service and good conduct medal and much to my mother's dismay because she really wanted to go, simply because half of his class had got promoted to inspector and beyond. And he never spoke to anybody above sergeant. (laughs) It wasn't (laughs) his way of doing business. Um, And it was quite fascinating to see him speak to the senior officers. You know, obviously, you know, you must be very proud of your son, Albert. You know, Um, he didn't quite know how to to address superintendents or chief superintendents back in the day. But but it's funny, because in a sense, Oliver, you know, I I, I was very fortunate in my career because of that special branch leg up. You know, sorry, not special branch, (laughs) showing my age, special course (laughs) leg up. um, I ended up going through the ranks uh, and -hmm. and bless you, my my dad has been retired that year. um, And and I would obviously go and visit him, you know, later in life. And he, he was a member of NARPO, the old retired officers bit.
0: Yeah. Uh, i don't know if
1: you, if you or any of your readers have ever seen the london novel. so it's a monthly magazine that goes out to retired officers but you know those of your listeners who are our former police officers will know the first thing you do you look to the back pages to the obituaries and oh, you look goodness. and see who else in your classes has died recently and it gets worse as you get older believe you <laughs> me oh my god you know there's not many of us left um but also if you read the letters pages my goodness me that the the, the, the the bile and, and, and vitriol aimed at senior officers in those letters is awesome. So, <laughs> um, so all the problems I thought I was getting, you know, as I went through the ranks, powders nothing, you know, having looked at NARPO and, and, my, and my dear old dad keeping my feet very firmly on the ground. Um, <laughs> so, so I suppose, you know, I, I had a grounding before I went into policing as as to what to expect in certain ways.
0: Not wanting to fast forward the clock too quickly, because I want to go back and talk about those early years in policing. But what rank did your father see you get to?
1: Um, he saw me get to commander.
0: Oh, amazing. Um,
1: yeah, yeah. Bear in mind, I was a commander for 10 years, so there was quite a long span in that. Um, and the funny thing was, um, Oliver, I, when I got promoted, as I did, you know, I rang him up and said, Dad, you're never going to believe this. And he said, what's that, <laughs> son? He said, I've just been promoted to commander. And I expect him to say, oh, you know, son, that's fantastic. I'm so proud of you. He started laughing. <laughs> I said, what are you laughing at, mate? He says, oh, he says, son, there's you at the top and there was me at the bottom for all those years. And, and do you know oh. what, Oliver? I, I I said to him, Dad, mate, you've got this wrong. The, the, you know, the mm-hmm. police service for me is an inverted triangle. You know,
0: Yeah, I agree. And,
1: and, and I've always said throughout my career, and, and, I, you know, and this isn't false, false humbleness, I honestly believe that my role at every given rank was to create the environment for, for, you know, the PCs and the sergeant and the inspectors to actually go and do the job.
0: Totally uh, agree. And I
1: think some of my senior colleagues, some, you know, sometimes lose sight of that and become, you know, overtaken by their own sort of egos and their own drive. And actually, we're there. We're there to let the cops do the job, basically. And it, it was basically my old man that kept my feet firmly on the ground.
0: That's an incredible story uh, I want to talk about so you graduated um, to Gerald Road I want to talk about the period between 77 and 82 when you, you between the rank of police constable and sergeant in those first early years when you graduated was there any particular job that you went to or any sort of exposure where you realized outside of your experiences of from hearing your father's stories that policing was going to offer you both emotional and physical challenges and in, for instance dealing with sudden and unexplained trauma and going to domestic violence incidents and, and serious road traffic crashes, what kind of brought home that, you know, this wasn't going to be always be an easy job?
1: Yeah, uh, that, that's, that's a really good question. Because, you know, even with, with my knowledge, you know, my my dad probably like a lot of police officers, um, wasn't one of those that came home and told you what he'd done at work that day. In, in fact, you know, he wouldn't want to talk about the job at all. Every now and then, you know, you would tease something out of him. Um, and I came from a, a stable, loving family, you know, where, where parents have been together for, for years. Which, of course, doesn't replicate what life is like there out on the streets. Mm. And, and I suppose, you know, like a lot people, the first time I went to a domestic dispute, I, I didn't know what to do. You know, you can be told about it, you can read about it, you can you can memorise the A report. You know, tact and diplomacy, and all these other bits and bobs, to actually deal with with a, you know a, a violently rowing couple. was yeah, beyond my imagination, but. Um, the, the, the one job that really sticks out to me and bear in mind, you know, so my career was fast forwarding in the sense of I didn't really have the career I set out to do. And I'm always frustrated about that. I was three years a PC at Gerald Road, which was a fairly quiet. You know, it wasn't, you know, you're, you're tricky in a London places, you know, like a Tottenham or a, or a Brixton, which I ended up later. You know, it was great. It was a great learning point. And I, and I met some fantastic people. Um, I was only a year as a sergeant because then I spent a year down at Brams Hill on a special course. So within five years service, I was an inspector. Uh, and I actually picked up a lot of those, sort of, if, if you like, early years experiences a little bit later in my career, certainly rank wise. Um, and it was, it was a lot of the issues I dealt with as an inspector uh, in, in South London, in, in Tower Bridge, Peckham, you know, southern places like that, that that stick with me. Uh, and the one that always sticks, in, or two that stick in mind, one was that. As you say, that first really nasty fatal, where, where I'd gone to, where a little old lady had been run over by a huge articulated lorry. there was literally nothing left of her. And I'd got there, you know, when it was all done and dusted, but saw, you know, what, what was left of this poor little old lady. And I can remember to this day, um, not being able to sleep for, for days after that, just imagining the noise of this lorry running over this, this one, And I'm sure many of your listeners have that, that same experience. It's that thing you just can't get out of your mind. But the one that really sticks with me was when my first child was born. So my eldest son now is, what, 35? So we're going back some. But I remember at Peckham going to one of those awful cop deaths, which, which for me were always one of the most challenging and difficult things to do. You know, the, the death of a tiny little baby. And having to manage the parents, you know, it really is. Uh, again, no, no study in, on, on this earth can prepare you for that. But the thing that stuck with me was seeing, you know, the baby in the cot, obviously dead and in a particular position with its arm up in a particular place. Um, but you deal with it, don't we? And you manage it and you move on. But it was some years later when my first child, you know, was asleep. And like most parents with your first baby, you spend it every night. When they do get sleep, you creep in to make sure they're still breathing. You think know? when you've had two or three, you forget about all of that. That all goes out the window, but the first one is special. And I remember coming home from a, from a later and getting in in the early hours of the morning, sticking my head in to see when, you know, how the baby was. And he was in the same position as this, cot death, mm-hmm. and, and literally for what seemed like hours, I just stood there frozen until he he, he kind of coughed and rolled up, and I went, oh, thank God for that. But but that's just and again I tried to keep with that as I went through my career because you you can forget the kind of issues that our colleagues deal with on the streets, but they then take with them at home. No matter how strong and brave and tough they try to be, those little things stick with you. And but because of the nature of my career, I I suppose I missed out on a lot of that, fortunately for me. But you forget your colleagues who've been doing that for years on end are dealing with that all the time but they probably don't go home and share it with people. It's not the sort of thing you talk about in a pub. But, you know, it's a bit of a laugh, is it? Um, no. But that, that, for me, is the real challenge of, of, of what police officers face on the street, that kind of trauma that other people only get once in their lives. They see quite regularly and have to somehow manage.
0: One of the greatest responsibilities, which I think you probably took on very early on in your career, as you say, you accelerated up the ranks relatively quickly because of this direct entry scheme because you'd had a degree, is then the ability to support your colleagues and your junior officers with some of those emotional issues and those challenges which they face from kind of a mental health perspective in terms of we try to compartmentalise what we see in terms of the trauma, the unexplained death. You know, you talk about this sudden infant death syndrome, SIDS in young babies, which is very traumatic to go to and managing the welfare. You know, the family liaison officers are incredible human beings in terms of what, what they do in managing families through significant trauma is is how do you go about looking after the welfare of your others? What techniques did you use in terms of looking after your officers as well as yourself
1: well, well again that, that's a great question honor because because at the time there was no training about this you know there, there, in fact there was scant regard to it to be honest um, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I can't remember any of the senior officer training I went on that kind of dealt with these kind of issues mm-hmm. it, it was always kind of alluded to, but there was an assumption that because you've got something on your shoulder, you suddenly automatically know how to deal with these issues. Yeah. Um, so, so again, you know, you, you fall back on your background, or on, on you know, sort of life skills and other bits and bobs on that. Um, but but I, I've always been a team player, you know, and I'm a great one for bringing sport into, in, into the workplace as well. Uh, and when you work in teams, you, you look out for your teammates and you know when someone's having a bit of a flat time. Um, so, so for me as a leader, and it essentially, you know, from, from inspector upwards, you're leading teams of people um a you need to understand y- your teams so y- you know those that you know who y- you know what their their characters are like and you know when it's something out of character and you should understand this someone's been sent to a cop death or whatever else they might be stuff with him but but i'm a great believer and it kind of seems to be frowned on today you know the old canteen culture but mm. P- policing is, is 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 a hard business but actually we we, we got through it through humor through teamwork and through actually just venting you know um so, so for me it was important to be you know a little a bit of the canteen culture be sitting in the canteen sit down and, and listen to what the guys and girls were saying it was important after a late turn to go for a beer with the team just just a quick one you know because you're in danger of outstanding welcome i think as a senior officer so so a couple of beers listen to people and that's where people start to unload on you and that's where I would work on someone. So if you'd had a, a bit of a gritty dough, you seemed out of sorts, I'd say you're going for a beer, you know, take you to a little corner, have a little chat, you know, and, and then let you vent in the quiet and, and the, the peace. But but no one teaches you this. You have to learn it. And I suppose over the years, I'd have got some of it wrong um, and probably didn't manage people. But I'd like to think, well, just, just by understanding the people you work with, mm. you, you can see when they're, they're a little bit out of sorts and work with them. I'm hoping now, you know, that the that, that senior colleagues now get more training and background into how to more effectively deal with that. But we kind of had to do that on the hoof, didn't we? I mean, you know, that that was my impression back in the '70s. A lot of this was unstructured. A lot of this was accepted, but it's also accepted that you were a tough. You know, it was a, a, still a male-dominated job in those days. Women as police officers only just recently got their their own section. You know, like in the late '70s. But you were expected to go to these really nasty, horrible things, manage it, switch off completely and not suffer from these problems, you know. So probably in the early parts of my career, we didn't understand a lot of these issues that our colleagues were suffering.
0: Well, terms like PTSD and trauma were words which would never have been really known about at all, I would imagine, through that period. So uh, talking about this progression through ranks, obviously you moved as an inspector at Tower Bridge and Peckham and then an inspector at... Am I right in saying between 87 and 88 at TSG?
1: Yeah, um, when the CSG was first formed back in 1987, if you remember at the time, there was a a good deal of controversy about its um, forebears, the Special Patrol Group, the the notorious SPG, um, the death of Blair Peach probably being the the final turning point in the existence of that. But I think there was recognition that the Met always needed what I would call some kind of a 24-hour insurance policy We'd had, you know, if you remember after the Brixton riots, there was a kind of a hybrid SPG, the old divisional support units. Every division would have had one, you know, your listeners will remember the the old, the three white old diesel transits. that took about an hour and a half to start on a cold, frosty morning. (laughs) Um, Volunteers, usually the young single lads, because there was a lot of overtime in it. The the old female officer as well back in the early days, thrown onto a band with no particular training, but we were all level two trained. Um, and you just went merrily around your, your own patch of the land, you know, causing havoc, sorting out a few issues along the way. Um, but then they formed the, the, the Territorial Support Group back in 1987. So I was one of the first inspectors on that. Three um, TSG down in southeast London, based originally at St. Mary Cray, which I think is just about stood in the map. Um, but the great times, you know, I was the original, I was Uniform 321, which they used to call Dusty Bin, those of you that remember the old quiz program.
0: well TSG is obviously in Territorial Support Group you know iconic large carrier vans you know you open the door you get generally 10, 15 big men and women come out who generally can you obviously, you're dealing with significant public disorder, so you need that. One of the tactical options we talk about in policing globally is the, the is the is the tactical option of presence, and the mere presence of ten, fifteen police officers getting out of van says a statement in terms of we are here now and we're going to take back control. Whatever environment has lost particular control, whether it be a pub altercation, whether it be in a park setting, wherever it may be, it's quite an imposing group of individuals that are generally at the front line of any sort of disorder across London. So. Was that when you established, when you were in that established unit of TSG, was that your first real kind of inkling that that's where you saw your career going? Because obviously obviously will talk about latterly your career as a gold commander, as overseeing these large public order events. You know, people get this flavor, I want to be a detective or I want to go into water operations or SO19. Was that your moment in terms of this is the environment I feel most at home at? It,
1: it wasn't the moment but it was a defining step along the way so so interesting if, if we just wind back a bit you know um, mm. th- those early career decisions they, uh, to this day you know I, I kind of informally mentor y- young young men and women who want to become police officers um, mm-hmm. and, and despite some of the you know the current negativity that seems to be fashionable I, I'd always encourage them to join the police because in my view you know policing is a thousand careers in one and mm. you can take you know you can take your career really where you want to go with it, with a little bit of hard work and application um, you know uh, wholesale skits but but as a young pc or you know like, like most of my young colleagues i aspired to be a detective you know, <laughs> it seemed quite exciting you know the suits were nice the clothes were a little bit sharper the work seemed a little bit more cerebral um but this was back, remember, in the early seventies, in the days when on Friday afternoon, if you wanted to find the DCI, you know, you'd be lucky. But you go in his office; it was full of full of cigarettes, smoke, There'd be a bottle of scotch, and he'd have a couple of early old detective sergeants in there. um But I managed to get myself on the old A District Crime Squad. You know, I was getting involved in a few investigations, really getting a shine to it. um But as part of the special course process, you had to take the sergeants' exam at the first or second opportunity and pass him, which I did. And then on this particular Friday afternoon, I get a call from the DCI, I've passed the sergeant's exam, and he calls me, he goes, Broadhurst, come in here, son. So he says, you've got a choice to make, son. I said, what's that, sir? He says, do you want to be in my game or do you want to be in their game? I says, well, I'm not sure, sir, but I think I've got to take the bros. He says, well, F off then, son. <laughs> Go back to the wooden tops. And that that was the end of my detective career. Um, oh, but fascinating. you know, go, going back to sport, I, I was you know I I, was, I really loved sport. You know, you just play a lot of rugby and still get involved. So so shield training that type of stuff and stuff I could do.
0: Yeah. So
1: really, I, mean, I, I was shield training back in the early days when the Met went to a place called Felton with borrowed green overalls and borrowed NATO helmets and threw real bricks at you. Really, <laughs> really painful. <laughs> but but yeah, that that's what I always did. And as an inspector, I was you know leading shield unit So actually when the tsg came along the opportunity to get involved in that was you know what was was the catalyst Uh, and i really enjoyed it but interestingly you know when you look at the tsg i agree with everything you said about them but probably less than 20 percent of the tsg's work is public order work it's mainly crime work supporting boroughs doing all sorts of other things you know um, saturation so yeah saturation where, where you need you know at a short notice, bodies of officers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and genuinely, even to this day, I still think the TSG, despite their, you know, the reputation as knuckle-draggers, you know, give them crowns to draw, and all those they're kind of cheeky police things, actually probably one of the most professional policing units I've ever worked with, um, you know, bar none. So I have huge respect for the TSG. And again, like everything else, but because of, the, you know, the, the 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 challenges of accelerated promotion, I was only on it for just over a year. When I, when I was told in no uncertain terms by my boss, look, look, Bob, if you really want to get promoted, you better get your skates on and um, better go and be a staff officer. Or go. And I actually went from there onto a, a project team with a superintendent called Ian Blair, who went on to bigger be and better things as well. Um, Indeed. But, but yeah, you know, it, it was a journey along the way. Uh, and interesting, you know, just just another little anecdote, I remember driving the, uh, the late senior around on Peckham one day, a fantastic old uh, superintendent, what well, Chief Inspector was in those days, a guy called Dinger Bell. Um, famous for a picture of him in the Brixton Rise with a big helmet on and blood pouring down his face but stood on the front line kind of epitomised what tough policing was all about back in those wow. days and, you know, and I remember he was kind of doing a, a, a loose AQI an annual report on me whilst I drove him round in the early hours of the morning um, big big bluff northern land So said well, what do you want to do with your career Bob so I'm, I'm going to go on the TSG governor he says oh sod the TSG you know Do this, do that, do the other. Get promoted to Commander, and then you can run the whole bloody show. (laughs) And actually, in the back of my mind, that little bit kind of stuck with me. Um, So, so yeah, I mean, but, but the TSG was a great experience. I loved every minute of it and was really sad to have left it so early. But then equally proud, you know, at the end of my career, to actually be sort of not in charge of it, because it was run by much better people than me, but having it as one of the toys that I had to play with.
0: 'Cause at that point, you know, by the time we get to um the early nineties where as you talk about you became a staff officer to AC Johnson, you had seen the Brixton riots, you'd ev- you had even seen I'm um, going to predict the fallout from the farm rights and the death of Keith Blakelock, you know, really big serious moments in the history of London and public disorder which really demonstrated that there were times that things can get quite volatile and out of control and, and really need brave men and women on the front lines to really bring things back to status quo and a level of normality for people in the general public.
1: Yeah, I absolutely did. And it set my mind thinking back in those early days That the, and this is one of the things I really pushed on you know, certainly when I was commander public order you're right. You know anybody that's worked through the met during those histories. You know, I always describe the met as, you know, it, it has these peaks and troughs of violence and, and, and calm periods. And the mm. 70s, 80s, and 90s, in particular, you could define by you know the race riots, the poll tax riots, student riots, mm. work-related riots, you know, disturbances, and some of them really, really violent. Um, but amazingly, to this day, public order is still only seen as a hobby. It is not a mainstream policing occupation in the same way that being a detective is or or something else like that. Um, It's hard to get onto because, you know, it's a pass or fail course. And every year you have to re-qualify. But actually, as a senior officer or even as as a shield officer, it's voluntary. You cannot compel a, a PC or a sergeant to be a shield trained officer. They don't want to. Wow. You can't compel the senior officer you know, to manage public order events. And in fact, you can only manage public order events if you've done the the public order course. I mean, that's a national requirement set down by ECPO. But you volunteer to do that. And actually, when you think about it, you know, Oliver, uh, some of this will come out in some of the jobs we'll talk about later. Actually, being in charge of some of those big events or being on the command team can be career-threatening when they go wrong. And they also have to be planned and managed in your spare time alongside your day job. And it also means working probably something like 25 to 50% 50 of your weekends. Now, actually, you can be quite a clever senior. You can duck and dive a lot of that and and still get to a a nice end point. So, you know, who who in their right mind would actually want to volunteer and do that? Well, actually, it's like-minded people uh, and it's good people and some of the best people I've ever worked with that end up on the Met's carder and then you're you managing and leading. In my view, you know, as you say, some of the bravest, you know, um, cleverest, smartest young people who are actually doing the job on the ground itself.
0: Fascinating to think, really, that it's not really considered to be a kind of permanent fixture in the career of policing. Because when you look at some of the events, which not only take part. Locally, within London's or the Metropolitan Police's geographical area of responsibility, but nationally, you talk about football matches, you talk about Notting Hill Carnival, you talk about Olympics, you talk about G20s. Some of the largest and most expensive security and public order events that go on and the planning that goes behind some of those events and and sometimes the level of disorder which goes on as a result of the fallout of some of these is extraordinary. It's just quite mind-blowing. But equally so, let's talk about, before we go into those in more detail, Let's talk about your <clears throat> excuse me, your progression from then being very proactive on TSG and on borough to becoming a staff officer. Well, that's obviously a very administratively driven role and very much a support function. You weren't in that role for too long before you then were moved back to borough to Sutton as a chief superintendent. But what was the staff officer position like? Was that really just a kind of a grounding to kind of prepare you for what was to come?
1: It, it absolutely is, um, Oliver, if you speak to any senior officer, it's probably one of those roles that nobody really wants to do, everybody wants to avoid, um, but the reality is, it is such a good grounding for being a senior officer, you know, anything from superintendent and above, and certainly for ACPO, um, because... You, you get an insight to, to how the police service is run that you've never ever seen before. You know, mm-hmm. no matter no, 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 what you've done to you do, know, where, wherever you are, PC sergeant, inspector, you know, you're beavering away in your particular area, be it on the beat, be in a, you know, in a CID office, wh- wherever you are, moaning about stuff not being right. You know, moaning about all the little things in life, which, which is what cops are, are good at. You know, regardless of rank, may I tell you, you know, even commissioners moan about stuff. Um, that's part and part of the policing, but to actually see how it operates is fascinating. And, and you only really get that by being a staff officer and particularly being a staff officer, you know, to someone in, in a key position. Um, I actually first became staff officer, probably, I, I think one of the turning points for the Met was, it, was in that period around the early 90s. Up until then, the Met was probably still very obstacle in its approach to most things, certainly in its approach to performance-related, you know, Operations in its management of budgets, you know, and its management of senior officers, heavily overloaded with senior officers. You know, when I joined, um, sixty odd divisions, you know, twenty four districts, you know, from A to Z, minus a couple of letters of the alphabet that didn't seem to fit on your shoulder. Um, Every one of those being headed up by a DAC who was driven around, you know, by his own driver in a black princess. You know, sixty odd divisions, you know, each with a chief superintendent. Yeah, just incredibly top heavy. It's gone totally the other way, might I say at the moment, you know, and, and some of those chief superintendents are doing stuff that when I joined, assistant commissioners were doing. So something's wow. gone wrong somewhere. But I joined under an old style DAC, a, a really lovely guy called David Usland, but he was literally in the office at nine, left by quarter to five, you know, and, and you, you couldn't find him until the next day. That's not to say, you know, he was a great guy, but that's just how things operated back in those days then ian johnson came along and and next door on on what was then i think five Area came dennis o'connor you know two really driven former met officers who who basically seemed to be driving each other but coincided with the era of performance management Uh, and and ian johnson literally worked me and others to the bone and, and you know literally shook up the pot of the old style chief superintendent who would, would do that kind of nine to five stuff and if you, if you wanted to find him on a wednesday afternoon a bit of his golf club if you wanted to find some other bit of this club or, or whatever you know and it was still male dominated sadly you know, in those days um yeah so but, but i learned so much i mean i learned a lot about how the the the, the 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 met operated how the different departments came together how what we see on the ground floor is so complex in how it even comes to, to birth know, to happen. And and, and probably you know, you could never get to to a senior rank without doing some of that along the way. But interesting, yeah, and this kind of pervaded my career. You know, again, I was really lucky to get to where I was, but clearly I, I was old school, you know, I did what I had to do, you know, and that was enough. When I looked after the family, played rugby or whatever else was going on. Ian Johnson would work you 24 hours a day if you could, um, and I clearly wasn't coming up to muster, but you know, going back to the old school because I'd been where I was for such a long time, you know, those AQRs that we used to have, I was generally, you know, not either outstanding or very good, you know, simply because you know you'd been around so long. I'm clearing in Johnson's tray out one day, and he had a habit of just scribbling on bit you know, little notes on pieces of the paper, and I picked up one piece of paper headed for the chief superintendent um, personnel back in the day, and it's got. Uh, please advertise for a new staff officer. So so once again, I saw saw my career, you know, nosedive in front of me and I actually got posted to Epsom. And I didn't even know where Epsom was, let alone the fact that it was in the Met. It's not anymore, it's now in Surrey, which I thought was a punishment posting. But yeah, that's just the way my career kind of lurched up and down along the ways. But, you know, the staff officer bit was fascinating. It's not something you would wanna do, not something you push yourself forward to do, but actually the learning, And to see how this operation runs or doesn't run at times and how senior officers conduct themselves, you know, it was a huge eye opener for me.
0: Well, it's, you know, the significant difference between those positions, you know, when you go from the more operational frontline roles to supporting your sergeants and PCs on the road to then being accountable to the ministerial requests that come into those levels like what's happening in what's happening in my area why isn't this being done councillors coming forward with problems suddenly not only are you dealing with the public but you're dealing with the figureheads which sit amongst the public who are actually asking the questions the serious questions and holding you accountable for ultimately what is their electorate because obviously each government's trying to stay in power and one of the biggest issues around re-election is law and order um, so, you know, you, you suddenly have this higher level of force that you've got to, to answer to. So it must be a, a whole new different world. But I want to move on, if I can... Um... Our little crossover here, if we have one, is I was obviously a police cadet in uh, 97 to 2002 before I emigrated to Australia. And I was based in Gypsy Hill there under under the leadership of a of a lady called Jane Ralph. And it was an incredible eye opener for me into policing because obviously policing was something I wanted to do from a young age. And you at the time were the chief superintendent at Lambeth, um, which is a, an incredibly diverse melting point of cultures within that borough uh, and has historically had problems in terms of the way police have been seen to policing certain communities um, the way things have been investigated and other bits and pieces which have, have reared their head what was it like in lambeth in the early 2000s as the chief superintendent
1: uh, again it, it was fascinating it was a great eye for me it was a part of london i had not policed before uh, and interestingly you know just going back to to my last point i I'd, I'd been the borough commander at Sutton for four mm. or five years uh, th- three or four years um obviously an outlying borough actually quite a busy borough but you know, not a high land borough john stevens was the commissioner at the time and um i I'd, I'd been very lucky to get on the senior command course so I, I passed that and i had my first commander's interview um with the what was then the the, the metropolitan police authority the old mpa John Stevenson sits in the corner of it, and, and sadly, I failed it. Um, uh, another opportunity came up, and I put my thing in without really thinking, and I got paper sifted, um, which was, you know, a bit of a shock to me because suddenly I thought, "Mean, you know, my hopes of aspiring to become a commander were now fading fast." You know, looking
0: at my, my track record. So, and by remember, paper sifted, by paper sifted, do you mean not even given a look in?
1: Not even given a look in at the interview. Um, uh, and it's a long story I won't bore your listeners with, but basically J- John Stevens, you know, I, I'd, I'd upset him somewhere along the line. Um, and, and he his, his decision, I wasn't going to get this next, an opportunity to the next board. Well, the next day after the paper, well, he'd done the paper shift, I was waiting for the results and I'm in Scotland Yard with all the other chief superintendents, all the other borough commanders. We're all together, all my old mates. Um, hmm. Some of the people that you mentioned, people like Simon Foy and others, we're all standing there. And the commissioner comes down the corridor towards me and he makes a beeline for me, and I think he's going to come to me and say, Bob, good luck on the commander's board, son, you know. Boom, he came up, pokes me in the chest and goes, Broadhurst, you're out, and walked on. Oh, and I, Oh, my God. You know, <laughs> anyway, got a long story. I, I, I then went to see Ian Johnson, who a few years earlier had written, you know, please advertise for a new staff officer. Two years later, he promoted me to chief superintendent at Sutton and Epsom. So I went to see him, and I said, look, you look, what do I do? And he said, well, you know, commissioner likes you, but he thinks, you you know, you're too quiet, you're too nice, you haven't got the the, the raw factor to be a, a commander. Said, okay, fair enough. What do I do? He said, you've got to get on the bigger stage. That's when I went to Lambeth. Right. So I left Sutton to go to Lambeth. And actually, if you remember, Brian Paddock was the commander in charge of Lambeth at the time.
0: Yes, I do, vividly. Yeah? I remember that. Great
1: guy, Brian, an old friend of mine, back, back from our special course days, funnily enough. Um but it was an experiment. All, all the other boroughs were headed by chief superintendents, But Lambeth, because of its size, and Westminster, I think, if I'm right in saying, were headed up by ACPO-level commanders. So though right. was a chief superintendent, I wasn't the borough commander. I was Brian's deputy, but the kind of the operational head. Um, yep. but, but as you say, it was a great insight. And like a lot of London, um, it had its really challenging areas. And, of course, it's got its, you know, in terms of, police, race relations in the UK, Brixton's always going to be there. Um, And and it was a challenge, as it is in in some other parts of London, with, 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 you know, communities like that. But then you've got got other pockets of of huge wealth, um, just different, and I, you know, being a London boy born and bred, you know, I was born at the end of the castle, and I've never lived outside of London in my life. But London is just basically a series of villages that over time have kind of Created and all joined together and um, whatever together. division you work on in the Met you can go from you know affluent areas turn the corner you know and then you're in, in one of the dodgiest council estates you've ever come across turn another corner and you're, you're in somewhere completely different uh, and, and Lambeth had changed a bit certainly since the 80s some of the tensions had gone but some of them were still there yeah um, and, and it was fascinating you know managing a, a different set of communities and, and, you know, and again some really nice and enlightened people who were trying to make a difference but, but again Lambeth was one of those for me that that was a game changer i think in terms of my career because um a couple of things happened when i was there that i think you know held me in good stead one was that there was a young um west indian girl who'd gone on a school trip to france and had sadly died and drowned in a lake. Um, oh, wow. a terrible accident of course brought the pressures on back at home for the school for the parents yeah. and the family. But we, well, I, I made the decision, I think for the first time ever, to deploy um, a family liaison officer to France to deal with the, the problems out there. And you know, we got a lot of credit for doing that and managing the family and managing some of the issues. And then not long after that, Brian Paddock was on holiday, um, gone abroad for a couple of weeks, left me in charge. <laughs> well, that was his first mistake. Um, <laughs> and and, and when, when he was away, there was, there was a, a shooting on one of the estates around, around the back of London. there was a, was a black guy who'd been wandering in and out the streets with what looked like a firearm cut inside a Bible. I don't know if you remember that. You know, so he'd open the Bible up, show this firearm, and then start waving the firearms at people. Well, that obviously brought on a, a response, a firearm response, and, and the guy was shot dead on a balcony. I don't
0: oh, know wow. if you remember
1: that. Um, but that, that in itself then brought on, obviously, a, a lot of angst in the black community in, in particular. You know, a, another black guy shot in, in, in Brixton. Um, I was trying to manage the community, but, of course, the investigation into the murder, as at, at was at the time, gets taken over by the Police Complaints Authority, so you're not allowed to say anything about the investigation. Um, but I was then left in charge of, of Lambeth, a really challenging time in its history, managing the community, not being able to tell them a lot of the stuff they wanted to know. One of the most challenging meetings I ever went to was at Lambeth Town Hall the day after the shooting. Where you could have cut the tension with a knife, you know it really was febrile. It really was quite, um, quite nasty and unpleasant. And at the end of the week, there, there was—I wouldn't call it a riot, but there, there was a run around by some young, young ewes up and down Brixton High Street. And again, they went to the usual places, looted curries, looted the bike shop, took all the, the televisions and the videos. And I'm kind of, you know, probably being a bit stereotypic there, but it, 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 you know, it was again vandalism, rioting more than anything else. But Tim Godwin who who was my boss at the time in terms of, of that neck of the woods, gave me a fair amount of credit for for holding the community together during that challenging time so I, I learned an awful lot from that and as a result I went I got on the next commander's board and in uh, blessing the, the commissioner John Stevens, who not long before you know was describing me as a, as a bit too lily-livered and, you know, a, a nice boy, but, you know, not good enough. He, he always suddenly goes, Bob, yes, yes, and there I am, you know, commander. So for me, another turning point, but huge learning lesson, you know, the, the, the different challenges of different parts of London and the different approaches you need to take to manage those communities and manage your officers on the ground with the, with the problems and challenges they are facing.
0: So do you think Lambeth provided you with the extra skills that you needed that you probably felt you already had, but just allowed them to come to the surface more?
1: I, I think so. Well, bit. It, it, Again, it exposed me to to certainly a more challenging policing environment than I was used to. Um, you yeah. talked about the political pressures, you know. At the time I was there, um, and I don't think it was necessarily my fault or even Brian's fault, but, but robberies were rampant, street robbers in particular. Running at something like 40 a day, it, it really was, you know, dreadful. But but trying to keep on top of that with all the political pressures that went with it, certainly I, I learned a lot how, how you manage that. But also trying to manage the fallout because it is the officers on the ground that read all this stuff about how, how badly they're performing. And yet here you've got officers going out and almost on a daily basis, or it seemed like a daily basis, probably three or four times a week. They they were either being shot at or going to shots fired. You know mm. and the whole thing about the, the guy who was shot on the estate, the point I made at the public meeting was when that call came out, it was Lambeth officers who responded, your local officers, who responded to your public calling for help, all of whom are unarmed. And yet here's a man with a gun and they've all gone straight to the scene to deal with it. What does that tell you about the courage and bravery of these you know, men and women on the ground? Um, so, so I learned a lot about politics about how to manage upwards, how to manage senior officers when the pressure's really on, but at the same time, protect your workforce and that that same kind of thing i took into being a commander and particularly into the public order world
0: can i ask one of the we we spoke about it before in terms of the political element at that such senior rank and lambeth has always been a focal point for a lot of um politically motivated conversation around you know for instance stop and search and crime and the interaction and the work between police and the communities how did you find, or what were the challenges that you faced as a very senior officer acting up as a commander whilst Commander Paddock was away? Did you often, was there often a frustration dealing with the political element? Because they're obviously, I, I, rightly or wrongly, looking out for their own interests in terms of their own political sphere. How do you manage their expectations? Because that must be quite hard in terms of or equally looking out for the community, priority number one but equally managing the expectations of the local politicians and mayoral candidates and councillors, et cetera?
1: Yeah, I I found that a struggle at times because, you know, know, for for most of us as police officers, the politics goes over your head. You just want to do what you think is the right thing for your people. But, you know, unfortunately, politics pervades even communities now. You know, some of the processes that were brought in, you know, post the Brixton riots and others with all these community groups, they themselves are, are... They cease to become political, uh, community-based. They become political-based because everybody's Mm. coming to them with their own agenda. Um, And and it's no different really dealing with politicians. Each politician, depending on which party they come from, has got their own party agenda plus also their own personal agenda for where they want to get themselves. And and I suppose part of the skill set, and this is part of the skill set of leadership in any organisation, is trying to understand those people as best you can, listen to what they've got to say and, and try and... Balance what, what one group needs against what another group needs, but without ever cutting short your own values and own virtues. And you know, I think policing is pretty good at that. You know, it, policing is really quite simple. You know, we know what our job is. We know, sometimes there that, that, that seems a bit of an arrogance to that, but actually cut politics out of the way. It's about protecting people and keeping people safe. Mm. And, and I generally think, you know, The police service, you know, I I never agreed that that the Met is institutionally racist. I think it was probably institutionally incompetent at times. But generally, you know, most police officers I know want to do the right thing regardless. Um, Politicians often skew that for their own ends. And sometimes it's difficult for for us to actually see through those arguments and where they're going without putting your foot in it. But what what I learned from that, Oliver, is stick to the basics, set out your stall early and, and stick by that. And then... As the pressure comes on, so I'm sorry, I can't do that because and I set out why well, we're not going to do that. Might be a costing, might be another thing, you know, uh, but that's no different with working for your own workforce. You know, everybody has a view and an expectation of what you're going to do. Uh, and I think what that post at Lambeth, more than any, anywhere else, probably enabled me to clarify. Actually, you, you need to have your own values, your, your own way of dealing with it and stick to it. And don't One be the- pressured into changing things because of you know somebody else's view
0: because one of the greatest challenges you face as a borough commander is equally not only do your police officers have to respond to their normal day-to-day obligations responding to 999 calls doing investigations but the police service often gets used as a band-aid fix for other problems mental health you know you end up doing the jobs of what NHS providers and medical practitioners should be doing you know uh, those are the, some of the jobs that take up quite a large amount of policing resources and they do today that must be or must have been a bit of a frustration that you've got officers being so- sidetracked to, to jobs that o- ordinarily would aren't really a policing function would you agree with that and and how would you how do you how did you overcome that
1: oh absolutely and that has always been the case and I think it's worse than ever now And um, and I think my own view, and I think that the Met is slightly culpable in this, but over the years, however, I, I've seen the Met go, uh, and again, it's all politically influenced because it's about dealing with what is the, you know, all, let's call it the flavour of the day. But I just see now more and more niche policing, more and more little units set up to deal with social problems at the time. Um, but there's only really one pool of people you can ever take that that those people from, and that's front end policing. Uh, and when I talk to young cops on the street now, the level of cover on the beat, you know, is, is shameful and it's dangerous. Um, and that's, you know, if anything, I would want, you know, Royal Commission, whatever, Let, let's reset some of that. Let's look at some of this niche police. Is it still really necessary? Are we just pandering to politicians and performance against their real job. You know, you're, you're seeing it now in this current debate and the, the one guy in policing terms who's coming out of it well is, is good old Steve Watson up in Manchester who, who seems to be saying that enough is enough. Policing's is a really simple job. People expect us to turn up to burglaries. They don't necessarily expect us to solve them but what they want is a little bit of reassurance, a little bit of protection and someone taking an interest in their problem which is what you and I used to do all the time we'd go and spend an hour with a little old lady, mm. uh, have a cup of tea with a reassurer not hoping hell's chance, usually of finding the you know, the culprit, but we know that as police officers, but that's been turned on its head now. You know, you're expected, as you said before, you know, to, to clear everything up, to manage everything. So so we, we get sidetracked by the figures and the performance and actually forget what we should be there for. And that was another key lesson for me along the way that stood me, you know, really well in the public order world.
0: So, Bob, after you finished up as the chief superintendent at lambeth between 2000 2005 you were commander for southeast london what did that position entail what's that transition like what's your now overall remit in that position
1: um again so borough commander says on the tune, you know you're actually a chief superintendent running a borough and at the time there were the 32 boroughs of london and each of those, depending on what area you lived in, I always say never take a map of the Met off the wall. Just pin the next one on top because the Met was always changing structures. <laughs> um, but we had, um, I think it was probably about five years in. I was in charge of. I got promoted commander and looked after Southeast London, um, and that was the eight boroughs stretching from my old borough of Sutton in the west, right through to to Bexley down in the southeast there, but including Lambeth, Suburbs, Greenwich, Lewisham. Um, and other so so eight really, really busy boroughs. Probably about four and a half thousand police officers overall. Um, but eight boroughs each with a chief superintendent. Um, and, and interestingly, again relatively new structures. What what they then called the link commander. They'd had two or three link commanders in the previous twelve months. You know they come in got moved on retired whatever else so mm-hmm. bearing in mind I, i'm now in charge of an area that i was once policing in both in Lambeth and in Sutton. and like like most things um whatever you anyway, know as you go through your ranks when you get to, to the exalted rank of chief superintendent most of your peer group are people probably of roughly the same service of you you know and you've grown up and done stuff together so you, 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 you're friends in a way probably are not quite the same as you are as constables on a team or something as that close but people that you know and love and have bounced across. So I, I get the gig to be the link commander for South East London. The first thing they say to me is, well, Bob, you're only going to be here for six months. So you know, um, I actually stayed there for about five years. But, but, you know, ostensibly I was in charge of the whole of South East London, reporting to, to a DAC and up to the assistant commissioner in charge of that sort of neck of the wood, or in charge of territorial policing. Um, because in reality, I, I was only in charge of eight people. eight borough commanders and they themselves did a fantastic job of running the job Uh, and i saw myself and again another lesson for me uh, as as the cartilage between them and and the the dac and the ac above me um firefighting managing issues helping them get their performance right and then going back and supporting them and and championing their causes when and again my dac you know the commander above me was tim godwin a a Mm. great guy but hard taskmaster um you know, particularly when performance wasn't going quite the way it was. Um, and, and for me, that was fascinating. And it was another lesson about So when I first got promoted, something happened on one of the boroughs. Tim Godwin calls me and said, Bob, they've made a right hash of it down at so-and-so. Get yourself down there now and sort it out. So I go flying down to this borough into a gold meeting with the chief superintendent, who, of course, I know well. I walk in, he goes, "Hello, Bob, what are you doing here? And I goes, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> so he says, you know, basically sit down be quiet and shut up and got on with it. Then afterwards, he said, Bob, what are you doing? He said, look, I said, Tim Godwin's, and I learned a lesson because, you know, the, the boss says, go and do something. Mm. Actually, what it doesn't mean go and do something. It means go and sort that sort out. I don't care how you do it. I, I took it literally. So then you learn the lesson after that. The next time Tim comes your gets you, up, you know, go and sort it out. You pick up the phone and say, Fred, Simon, Tim, George, what's happening, you know, um, and, and you sort it out. And then you go back and tell Tim, I've done this. I've sorted this out. So it, it was another great learning point for me about how you manage people that you've been close to. But at the same time, having to say, no, look, you need to do this. Uh, and interestingly, you know, one one of the criticisms I got from Ian Johnson when he started to explain why he thought I was, you know, too nice. And, and, and even the commissioner said, look, Bob, you're one of those guys. You are a nice guy. You know, people like you because you're friendly. You get on with them. Um you're getting better but you have a habit of pressing people you know we're talking about senior people here until you almost get to the point when they're squirming so <laughs> then you let them off he said that's the point where you've got to get really nasty <laughs> um but it's not really in my nature to do that but but this is how you know the, the great leaders like the tim godwins you know the, the paul Stevensons, you know um john stevens and others Ian Johnson's that's what they're good at they put you on the spot and they don't let you off the spot until you feel really burnt out you go away feeling horrible about it but actually you know they've actually done their job I suppose at the end of the day
0: the interesting part about being the commander for southeast London and and overseeing these eight boroughs you know Richard Branson has this famous saying if you're the cleverest person in the room get out the room did you have the luxury of selecting chief superintendents that you knew would be successful and that you ultimately, you know, you would would allow you to sleep at night knowing that they had their boroughs well under control.
1: Now, that's an interesting point that we can talk about a bit more when we get onto the public order side of life. Mm-hmm. But actually, as the link commander of this earth, I had no say whatsoever in the postings. Right. Um, you know, the, the postings are done above me, they're, they're done at AC level and, and, and of course, HR, you know, human resource level. Mm. Um, There might be the other occasion, if there were a couple of people in it, you might get engaged in the environment. But but actually, when I went there, they said, you know, we've had three of you in the last 12 months was, you know, you'll be gone in six months, I stayed for five years, and watched every one of those boroughs change at least two or three times in terms of borough commanders. Because, uh, again, you know, one of the problems about seniority is you tend to become a bit of a butterfly. Yeah. Yeah, Couple of years, then you need to move on for your own career, or you get moved on if your own performance isn't seen as as, as being that good. You know, it's a bit like football manager. You know, once once you start to lose a few games, you know, <laughs> the boss might say, "Yeah, Bob's a really great guy," but the next week you, you've been moved somewhere. Um, but but yeah, it it, it it was an interesting role again because you know I, I'd always say you know in my, in my experience the the three best ranks to be as a police officer if you want to be a leader is, is a constable. That's what the mm. job's all about, and that, that's by far the most fun and great. You know, it, it's, it's horrible at times, I know that, don't get me wrong, and it's not particularly well paid. Um, but you're still your own boss, mm. you know. Apart from telling you, you know, whether to turn left or right outside the nick, you know, there's no law that compels you to do something, it's all about you know how you read situations, which is I think is absolutely fantastic. An inspector, because an inspector, you're actually a team leader of your own team of people, and that was probably one of the most enjoyable and great parts to be particularly if you're a team player and and then I would say chief superintendent because again that's the only other rank where you are actually managing an outfit of your own all the other ranks superintendents chief inspectors and others tend to be support roles DACs ACs I suppose the the ultimate is to be commissioner um, but Mm. that was never going to be on my radar and so actually as as a commander it's again it's another one of those ranks where you're not actually doing anything per se. You know? But you're, I think creating that environment for others to flourish and then do their job properly. So my job was to make sure that the eight chief superintendents could do their job properly. And, and again, be that cartilage between them and the guys above them. And, you know, take the flank, take the pain, take some of the sting of them, but go to them, you don't need to tell them what the bosses are saying about it. you just need to tell them look, you know, we need to improve on this area, do yourself a favour and and nudge this job. There's different ways how you interpret those messages, but my my view has always been, and always had been, you know, almost going back to my dad, the job is about the people on the ground. My job was to just let them do it to the best of their endeavours.
0: Because between that period of 2001, um, or even, you know, I think we're looking into the late 90s, early 2000s, there were issues such as, you know, the Brixton Nail Bomber going on around, you know, and, and causing. And uh, someone who's coming onto the show and good friend of yours, Simon Four, you know, these were some of the big issues that you... Chaps and guys and girls were tackling with, you know, uh, in trying to overcome and great issues in the community. There must be a great sense of fulfillment when you get it right and you're able to. Because I was going to reflect on, you know, Lambeth Town Hall has been the location for some very, very heated conversations and debates between community and police officers and various different senior figures sitting at that top table up on that stage, often being shouted at and pointed at, and people wanting answers to serious questions. There must be a very nice feeling when you get it right and when you're able to report on good news and have positive engagements. And I assume as the as the commander looking over these eight boroughs, there must have been many of those opportunities.
1: Oh, absolutely. And again, it's fascinating to go to each of those different boroughs, each with a different, although they're all part of London, they're all different in their own right. They all see themselves as independent yeah. and different and have their own local culture. And even within the boroughs, you know, <laughs> you talk about Lambeth, you know, Streatham quite different, you know, to Brixton, quite different to Kennington. Um and, and all see themselves as that different. And again, part of our skill set as not just senior officers, but police officers right around the board is to manage those kind of sort of local issues and actually make everybody feel they're the most important people going. Um and again, you know, I, I shared in the success of all those borough commanders who all did some fantastic stuff. But and again, this doesn't get reported beyond it, but Quite rightly, I, I suppose you know, the, the media and the news and the, the social media of this day and age will always pick up on the controversial and the challenging and the negative, um, because that's news. But what you saw, you know, on a regular basis, wherever I went and listening to local community groups, you know, advisory groups, actually to see that the, the fantastic rapport built up by not just chief superintendents, but you know, by everybody right there in you know, local constables, beat officers, PCSOs. The, the relationship that they generally had with their communities was was always strong. Mm. Every now and then you you see you know some tensions, but they were generally people bringing in their own agendas. But generally, you know, what what I saw throughout London, and I'm sure this is the same on down the country, is most people understand and recognise the challenging job the police do and, and have a good relationship with their local police. Sometimes that goes a, a little bit haywire. and and, you know you you judge your best borough commanders and support staff by how quickly they get back to a to a level of normality and the interesting about london you know we're going to talk about 2011 in a minute but you look at the brixton rice you look at all the other things in between you know um that they are issues and they're really challenging for for a short period of time but very very quickly communities and the police have, have the ability to reset and just get back on and lead our lives in a kind of an organised and a sort of well-managed
0: way. You're listening to part one of my chat with former Metropolitan Police Commander Bob Broadhurst. In part two, Bob describes the moment in 2011 when he felt for the first time in his policing career that the police had lost control of London following the outbreaks of serious public disorder. All this and more, next... On protect and serve protect and serve is a mash pumpkin production hosted by oliver lawrence research and questions by oliver lawrence and robert win stanley produced edited and sound designed by jack lawrence